pre-treated swine with low-dose cyclosporin immunosuppression to limit allogeneic cardiosphere-derived cell therapy rejection. I wanted to see whether this low-dose was necessary and, if so, if it could be initiated at the time of reperfusion. Interestingly, in contrast to previous studies, they were unable to reproduce the cardioprotective effects demonstrated by allogeneic CDCs without cyclosporin. John, maybe you can maybe walk us through the reasons behind how this study was first conceived. Sure, Amanda, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about our work uh, in the AJP podcast. So this really dates back about 10 years when we began looking at intracoronary infusion of allogeneic cells in hibernating myocardium. And we did that to try to look at functional improvement in a model that we couldn't actually revascularize at the time. And um, it progressed to, from uh, mesectable stem cells to uh, cardiosphere-derived cells, and then autologous to allogeneic. And we conducted a series of course, studies in various models of uh, chronic ischemic heart disease, as well as more recent one in acute myocardial infarction that suggested when we infuse cells to the entire heart, they had a pretty profound effect on remodeling in the remote zone, which was very unique in in comparison to what most everyone else was doing with intracoronary cell infusion. And so we first tried to look at this in a reperfused model and uh, found that it had functional effects as well as this effect on myocyte uh, hypertrophy and proliferation in the remote zone. And one of the one of the problems in translating that to human disease was the fact that in the allogeneic models for right or wrong, we decided very early on to administer cyclosporin immunosuppression. And it turns out in a low dose, which is probably lower even in the pig because they metabolize it uh, quickly. So when you have to pre-treat um, animals before you administer the cells for three days, it doesn't become a very practical approach to use in people with an acute ST elevation infarction, which led to the present study where we gave cyclosporin at the time of reperfusion, which is what you could do in a human. And uh, when, fortunately, when we did this in a blinded, randomized, well-controlled trail, we uh, came up with the first study with CDCs that we've used that did not work. I think it's as important to publish negative studies as positive studies in the preclinical literature, because when we translate these things back to the clinic, it turns out that most of our clinical trials are indeed negative. Yeah, that's great, John. Uh, Fabio, any, anything to add here? Yeah, so uh, I think that it is important to publish uh, uh, studies like uh, the one that uh, has been presented today in this podcast, because even if uh, with negative findings, studies like this one that were performed by John's group 
can tremendously, I think, in my opinion, help the field by preventing major future failures in clinical trials. In fact, I commend the American Journal of Physiology, Heart, for the decision uh, to publish uh, John's study. I mean, we need journals that have the courage to publish also negative findings when these are preclinical studies and can be so important for preventing uh, clinical failures. In fact, I think that uh, the all-star clinical trial should have been preceded by a more robust phase of preclinical research in large animal models, testing a variety of approaches. Really, I would like to see more from, from John's group, I mean, more studies, testing even other, other, other protocols to come up finally with uh, you know, a more definite vision of what we should do with allogeneic uh, CDCs and the treatment of myocardial infarction. John, real quick, I want to go back to something that you mentioned and kind of leading up to this study in terms of the progression of the cell sources that you mentioned that you've used in the past. Was that progression due to refinement, meaning like you 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 used the next cell source because you thought it would be better? Or is there some other reason for kind of moving to different cell sources in the past? That's a good question, Amanda. Um, well, we did a comparative study in the pig, uh, which was designed very much sort of as blind and randomized, sort of the way we conduct a small clinical trial, comparing uh, mesenchymal stem cells to cardiosphere-derived cells. And uh, in a hibernating myocardium model, they actually resulted in the same effects physiologically in terms of function, as well as the myocyte uh, cellular proliferation and remodeling. But it looked, at least in the cellular signal, that the cardiosphere drive cells might have a little bit of an advantage. And so we made the switch at that point to cardiosphere drive cells. But I'm not sure that there's really all that uh, much difference in their peregrine effects. I know there are a number of people with ar would argue with me about that, but at least in the large animal model, it's hard to tweak that out. Well, they're not here to argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Fabio, you're our expert reviewer for this podcast. What do you believe was most interesting or you know, unique to you about this particular study? I would like to highlight that these are difficult experiments because they require a combination of skills. We need expert animal care. It's like a veterinary clinic. And uh, then ad hoc cell culture technologies. They need to isolate cells to characterize them, to expand them ex vivo in addition to all the work that uh, is done in vivo. And uh, the, it's all, it, it is also based on state-of-the-art diagnostic imaging that require a highly specialized research staff. I think that per se, this is something important that should be highlighted because, I mean, there are very few labs now that, that can do these things and have all the, the necessary expertise, staff, and the equipment to, to perform these experiments. And uh, an important as aspect in terms of science that emerges from the comparison between this study and the previous study also published by, by John's group is the necessity to administer cyclosporine many hours before myocardial infarction. And, uh, and then allogeneic uh, uh, CDCs infusion. So we need, evidently, we need cyclosporine. If this is the case, the only possible, in my opinion, a realistic scenario, clinical scenario, would be the pretreatment 
with the cyclosporine for patients who have already suffered from myocardial infarction and, and are scheduled for CDC's coronary infusion a few days after the episode. I would say that the future PIG study should test this type of protocol, which uh, if successful, uh, will allow us to look more, I would say optimistically, at new clinical trials based on, on uh, allogeneic CDCs in, in coronary, infused in coronaries for, for the treatment of MI. On the other hand, I mean, this is my opinion, but then I would like to hear more from John. Uh, preventive cyclosporine pre pre treatment before myocardial infarction, although scientifically interesting, is not uh, realistic in the clinical scenario. So it's like you have to predict the occurrence of myocardial infarction and administer this drug, cyclosporine in this case, but we saw other, other experiments of this kind done in the past. So I would like to hear more from John about this, if there is a future in this type of treatment, but not based obviously on the pre-treatment before myocardial infarction with an immunosuppressor. Yeah, those are all very uh, good points, Fabio. I think in terms of the uh, issue about myocardial infarction, you know, we all look at models of myocardial infarction and post-infarction remodeling, but clinically that's less of a problem now than it was when I started my career 40 years ago. <laughs> um, we've got a lot of good therapies, and when we're looking at adding therapeutics on top of reperfusion, it's hard to actually show that anything's going to be a, a make a big bang. But when we look at people with ischemic heart failure, a lot of them have never had an ST elevation myocardial infarction. They have chronic coronary artery disease. They may have multiple small infarctions. So there's a basic problem in translating a lot of our work that's preclinical in a model of reperfused myocardial infarction to the vast majority of people, people with ischemic cardiomyopathy. And then there's a non-ischemic. So I think that even though you can't give cyclosporin pretreatment to people who might get an ST elevation infarction. So there's still a lot of people with chronic heart failure that are outside even people that had a silent myocardial infarction that would you know, be of great benefit. I guess and the cyclosporin story is sort of interesting. You know, and I, I, I didn't do well in immunology in medical school. So I've tried to learn it at a later stage of life and it's very hard. But uh, the more I read, the more I get confused. But um, there is a story between low-dose cyclosporine and, you know, immunosuppressive doses, high-dose cyclosporine, and uh, other diseases that uh, is sort of interesting. And it really impacts, or it really relates to the effect of cyclosporine on multiple cell types. You know, we think of it in terms of suppressing T-killer cells in the acute immune response in people that would have uh, transplants or rejection. But Lower doses really modify a lot of different immune cell types differentially in a very complex fashion. And so uh, I'm not sure, I, we've been, I've been trying to figure out whether or not we've stumbled on something not knowing what we were doing in the sense of giving this, uh, what is a pretty minuscule dose of oral cyclosporin and maybe priming the immune system in a way that facilitates uh, cardiac repair with these allogeneic cells. So that's really the direction we're pursuing, although we're pursuing it slowly. It's a hard thing to sort out in the large animal. The immune response varies over time. It varies you know, by species, and it varies 
by you know particular model that you're looking at. So uh, it's it's complicated. So this is even more interesting. So you think that uh, as it happens sometimes in experimental medicine, you start using a pharmacological agent, thinking that is doing uh, in this case it is uh, suppressing the immune response and the reality that is doing something else that was previously unpredicted. And maybe in the future, we will discover that cyclosporin per se can protect myocardium from the consequences of ischemia. Yeah, or just um, really amplify the, uh, the reparative response to uh, allogeneic cells. So that's uh, really the area that we're interested in, in looking at. I think this discussion is a good segue to my next question. So, John, were there any challenges during the project that you can share with us in particular? No, no challenges whatsoever. <laughs> Science <laughs> so, goes so, perfect, right? <laughs> yeah, no, the biggest challenge probably if you have the people in the lab are keeping me away. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, we have a good team. But as I think Fabio was alluding to, it really takes a village. And, um, you know, it's it's in a way like an orchestra. There are a lot of people that participate in these studies. Probably the biggest challenge initially when we, uh, not starting in this study, but prior studies, was figuring out how you do a randomized blinded trial in a preclinical lab. The CSER uh, study, which uh, Roberta Boley led, and I was chair of the protocol review monitoring committee, really set out to look at this type of trial in um, myocardial preconditioning, which gave me some good ideas in terms of how you do it. And it can be done, but you have to have people at multiple levels that are doing different things, coding, one person keeps the stats and then you know keeps everyone blinded to the results. And one of the challenges, I think, preclinically, that we, we all like to see what the latest experimental results are, you know, what we did that day. And we get all excited when things, you know, work and disappointed when they don't. But when you're going on in a trial like this, not really knowing what the results are until the end, that's hard for the, uh, especially junior investigators. You know, those of us who are seasoned in clinical investigation realize you have to have blinding to make the study valid. So that, that's hard. I guess, you know, from a practical standpoint, I, we're fortunate to have an imaging center right next to our labs, about 100 yards away. But uh, taking an animal with a balloon occluder in their anterior descending artery over to the CT scanner to look at the risk area where they're having an acute infarction and not having any developed arrhythmias was, you know, a tour de force, I think, and uh, very helpful in terms of looking at infarct size. So, But it, it's, it's like you say, the, the cell preparation takes a different team. The cell characterization takes a team. Cells sometimes don't grow as fast as you would like them, and <laughs> you need to delay the study. And, you know, for, for this study, to be honest with you, it took about two years to complete because each animal studied twice. There's 40 animals, and um, there are holidays in between. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so talking about the cells, so one of the major issues in the, in the field for CDCs relates to that lack of characterization of the CDC bioactivity prior to being used in vivo. So, you know, what do you think about this? Like, what do you recommend for the field or other investigators going forward with this issue? Yeah, I think there's some basic things we can do in terms of characterization of cell surface markers, which is what we've done. It's what uh, Eduardo Marban's group that have championed the CDCs has done. 
But beyond that, I think we're shooting in the dark. We can look at a lot of things and show that there are a lot of things that are different, but we don't know the magic juice that makes the things work. And it's, pre it's pretty clear now and, and well accepted. And I think we realized this pretty early on that these uh, cells aren't working by differentiating into myocytes or any other cardiac cell type, but it's by paracrine effect. And it's become pretty clear to us that this action probably doesn't require the cells to re reside in the heart. We can detect some of them, you know, four weeks later, if we use something as sensitive as PCR. So we can say they're there, but when you try to do a calculation of what's there, it's fraction of a percent of the injected dose. And uh, that's true even if you look 24 hours later. So without knowing what the specific factor is that we need to look for to show the cells are effective, it's really, really tough. You can show they look the same, they grow the same, they should be the same. And in our circumstance, they'd worked in four other studies. <laughs> and we didn't do anything differently that we can pinpoint in this study in terms of growing them up. So we think they're the same, but I have no way of telling you that it, there isn't a small difference of some sort. Fabio, anything to add here? Yeah, in fact, uh, I would like to ask a question, which is a follow-up on Amanda's question about the characterizations of cells before infusion. Then let's talk a little bit more after the infusion. And uh, John was already mentioning something. I'm very curious to know, I mean, what is the kind of knowledge about uh, cardiosphere-derived cells' fate in the heart after the infusion and, and uh, without or with cyclosporine treatment? So we give for granted that only a few usually are left, that maybe uh, cells are not really necessary. Maybe it's just the, 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 I mean, the cells in terms of cell mass. The, it is the product of these cells that really counts, uh, the software, let's say. And uh, so these are the factors that they produce. And in fact, I'm surprised that uh, um, the authors of this study, John's group, quoted only one other study, and if I'm not mistaken, is the study by Kanazawa et al. in Barban's group. And uh, this, they, this is, seems to be the only study which they systematically looked uh, at uh, the fate of the CDCs in the heart at histological and uh, um, immunological level, which is, in my opinion, surprising. I mean, we should know what happens to these cells. At least some studies should be at least fully dedicated to, to, to this characterization. What happens to their homing in myocardial tissue if they elicit an immunological response, if they differentiate and which cell type they lead to? And uh, I guess that we need a certain degree of precision there. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm asking too much for too much, but I guess that this is something that the scientific community should know. Yeah, well, I think there's a more fundamental question in there. And it doesn't matter if they're in the heart. <laughs> and, you know, we sort of focus on that. But when you really do the math, if you inject 30 million cells into a 100-gram heart, it's 30 million cells out of a, about 8 billion myocytes. You know, so the number of cells that possibly could be there are a fraction of the total. They're far and few between. You know, if they're, if they're injected uh, so they can disperse in the microcirculation. In terms of your question, Fabio, I think the, um, there are data, there are other studies in the pig 
from uh, the Marban group that have looked at earlier time points in terms of showing that with intracoronary infusion, there are cells in the heart. As I recall, after 24 hours, it was about uh, 1% of the injected dose. So it's not high, it's there. We did studies um, in the past in hibernating myocardium, as well as in uh, the myocardial infarct model with cyclosporin, where we uh, did an estimate of cells in the heart at four weeks. Uh, that's where uh, the Kanazawa study also looked. Um, we found about 1% of the injected dose remained with cyclosporin pretreatment. If we didn't give the pretreatment as we did as we didn't in this study, we didn't identify any cells at the end of the study. So I think the way I look at it is the immunosuppression sort of increases the dwell time of viable cells, whether that's in the heart, whether that's somewhere else in the body, you know, maybe there's a pericrine effect of these on the spleen and the whole post-inflammatory response. But I think they'll last longer. And the longer they last, the longer they're going to be able to secrete paracrine factors. But it's not as scientific as we would like. And I think to answer your question explicitly, it's a lot of work to do those studies. <laughs> and it's a lot of time to do those studies. And um, if you get the data at the end of the day, I'm not sure that it's going to impact, you know, your approach. We'd all like to know more about the mechanism and what the best way to do these things are. And as cardiologists, you know, we, we're sort of faced with uh, taking care of people that, uh, you know, have a problem and, you know, they have a certain finite survival. And we do tend to translate things into the clinic quickly. You can pick on the cell therapy area, but this whole criticism exists in virtually everything else we translate into the clinic. Just think of cyclosporin and myocardial infarction. We've done studies with metformin and myocardial infarction, which were also negative <laughs> and published. <laughs> so I think, you know, what is important is it's hard to do a lot of, um, get a lot of data from multiple centers on any sort of intervention before you proceed into early phase clinical trials because of the enthusiasm and because of the you know, desire to really help people. And, and also concern about, you know, is what we're doing in the animal lab really right? Is it both ways? You know, maybe it doesn't work in the animal, but it does in the human. Maybe it does in the animal, but not in the human. And finding that out sooner rather than later, you know, is, is good. But on the other hand, it should be based on well-designed, blinded, randomized trials with the sample size that's sufficient. The sample size, the blinding continue to be a problem. So it sounds like to answer those fundamental questions that Fabio raised, it sounds like the NIH just needs to give you guys some more money to answer those questions, right? Right. Yeah. No, no, a lot, lot more. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, they're very, they are very expensive. I, I think, quite frankly, I, I, you know, as, as Fabio pointed out, there are fewer and fewer laboratories that are doing uh, large animal cardiovascular research. And I think we've learned a lot from mouse models. But there, there are fundamental differences, you know, in the scalability of things going from a mouse to a human. We can look at a molecular mechanism a lot more adequately in a mouse than we can in a pig. But, you know, the, the size and scaling up makes a difference. If you inject cells in the mouse, it goes throughout the whole heart. It's only 100 milligrams. But if you scale it up to a heart of the size of a human, you're dealing with at least 100, maybe a couple hundred grams. And that's three or four orders of magnitude difference. And that makes a difference. And so uh, having a few centers 
perhaps that could test these things prospectively in an unbiased fashion is what I would imagine is the best approach going forward. Rather than all of us developing, you know, a large mouse lab that can study a few pigs and then boom, go on to human studies. So are you alluding to what some of the future directions are for this project then? Well, <laughs> right now, uh, we're thinking a lot about uh, cardiac drive cells. We're, we're, we're in the thinking stage. Uh, the funding for this aspect of the project uh, ended a couple of years ago, and uh, we've headed off in a little bit different direction on uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But we're still interested in it, and I think with all therapeutics like this, they go through a phase of enthusiasm. This one with cells has lasted a little longer than many others. It's usually sort of a 10-year upswing and downswing. And then there's a hiatus, and then they come back. So hopefully with time, the cell therapy, you may take a hiatus, but then come back and uh, we'll figure out exactly what the best substrate is, what the best cell platform is, and what the best way to, to you know, administer these, whether they require immunosuppression or not. Well, I want to thank John and Fabio for joining us today for this podcast. Uh, I thought it was a really great discussion, so I really appreciate you all taking the time to talk about this paper. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.